Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, folks, welcome to uh, another episode of the Elk Talk podcast. And Randy and I are here in beautiful Big Sky, Montana. And if you're not here this weekend at the Total Archery Challenge, you are missing out on some of the most fabulous weather that the West has seen this <sighs> summer. Isn't it amazing? Uh, what, 70 degrees? I don't sun? even know if it's there. It's like yeah. 66. Yeah. yeah Slight breeze. 
We got up this morning, it was 34 degrees. Was it? And, oh, it just, it felt almost like elk season. Yeah. Oh, I, I, woke, I was down in Bozeman this morning. I woke up there and went out, had a cup of coffee, and was just admiring the, the beauty of a crisp, yep. uh, almost August, I know. July morning. Made me think about cow elk, huh? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that made you think about it or all the emails we get with questions of how do we hunt cow elk? Well, that's it. Our number one, I would, don't you think if we, Hands if, down. Yeah, if we went through and sorted all of our emails that come to the Elk Talk podcast and where are those, com- where, where do they? From the website. So if you go to elktalkpodcast.com, just, uh, I think there's a contact button and you click that and you can send us an email with questions, topics, yeah. guests, anything that you want to suggest for us. Yeah. Do people think we're going to reply to all those? I don't think so. We, I, okay. I hope we haven't led Set them on making them think that we're going to reply because we just, we, the, get, the, we get enough we can't reply, but we do take note of, right. of questions that come through. Yeah, we sort them by topic, or at least I know on mine, they're sorted by topic and folders, and I look at the cow elk folder, <laughs> and I, I think we just, we got to get this out there. We do. Give people something to talk about. Yep. Um, even when we did the live Q&A in Boise at BHA, the number of people who asked cow out questions out of that audience was quite a few. Yeah. Well, so. I think when you break it down and look at the states that offer draw tags for rifle hunting for, for antlerless elk, and then the states that offer either sex archery seasons, I, I think cow elk hunters probably outnumber oh, yeah. bull elk hunters. And oh, so yeah. the, the majority of elk hunters each season are hunting antlerless elk. Yeah. And if you look at the harvest stats, in most states, the number of cows harvested each year is greater than the number of bulls. Yep. So if you hear a bunch of background noise, we're sitting in this great big tent, courtesy of Sitka gear. And there's a lot of people. So we apologize if you hear noise in the background, but that's why we come to these events is to mingle. Yeah. I guess. And they're playing that. What's that game? It's cornhole? Cornhole, yeah. They got uh, bags in subalpine and uh, open country. Yeah. And they got Sitka boards there. <laughs> my family can't play that game without be- almost getting in a fist fight. Really? Oh. My family back in Minnesota plays that game, and there will be people, cousins, who don't talk to each other for two months <laughs> over cornhole. I played last night for the first time, and actually our team won. Oh, so it was, you must have been playing against someone as bad as I am. Well, no, we had a, we were playing against a good team. Really? So yeah, it was John nice. and I, my, you know, our camera gan, cameraman, John, and uh, he and I were on a team. And then uh, Jody Sear from Oregon, a good friend of mine, he uh-huh. and my son Sam were on a team. Okay. They actually beat us to 21, but they went over. And if you go over, you have right. to go back to 11. Yeah. So we snuck in and stole the oh, win from them. There you go. Yeah. Well, anyhow, if you hear noise, <laughs> folks, that's uh, what you're hearing in the background. But cow elk, uh, my biggest concern about the the topic of hunting antlerless elk is that for some reason people seem to almost be apologetic or, <laughs> well, I shot a it cow. Was only a cow. Yeah. It's like, you know what? Shoot a cow and jump up and down and hoot and yell and whatever. Yep. Uh, and be grateful you don't have to pack the antlers out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they eat good. And that's, you know, yeah. honestly, at the end of the day, it's elk hunting. Right. And you're filling your freezer with elk meat. And I think that's the number one reason, maybe not number one motivation or anything, but when we look back on a successful elk hunt, yeah. 
that is the thing that we're most grateful for is a freezer full of elk meat. Yep. And a cow elk fills a freezer just like a bull elk does and probably tastes better. And yep. So yeah, there's don't don't ever anybody who hunts cow elk or wants to get into elk hunting and thinks that cow elk might be the easier target or the the desired target, don't ever apologize for that. That's no. We'll we'll congratulate you just the same. Yeah, and for me uh, at this point in my life, and I know there was a time I wouldn't have felt this way, but I do now. I've shot enough bulls that if you gave me the choice, because uh, a lot of tags you get are either sex yeah. or cow or branch antler. If I saw a raghorn bull and a cow standing there and I had the option of one or the other, I'd probably shoot the cow anymore just because the raghorn, he's finally made it to the <laughs> two and a half year old stage. He's made it through the most difficult part of a bull elk's life. He's starting to get smart. Yeah. I've... I, I and I, I just say that myself, and I know everyone's going to have a different perspective on it. But I'm, I'm to the point where that's where I am. I have a tag in uh, Wyoming this year that's a very long season. I drew it as a second choice, and I can shoot any elk until December 31st. So I'm probably going to go down there and try to find a bit of public land. There's not a lot of public land, but. I had Marcus, my camera guy, applying the leftover draw, and he got a cow elk tag. So we're going to have an either sex tag and a cow elk tag. I suspect we're going to, if we do shoot any elk, it's going to be two cows. Yeah. And as my grandfather would say, we'll have a smile like a ripple on a slop pail. <laughs> I have no idea what that really means. I had to ask him, what's that mean? Oh, that means you're smiling from side to side. <laughs> All right. So, but, so a lot of the questions are about tell me ideas or strategies for cow elk uh, tactics and, and i'm yeah. guessing for the most part it's probably in archery season rut that most of the people are asking that question because when it comes to rifle hunting cow elk i think you've covered you know the, the five seasons the needs within those seasons and for mm -hmm. rifle hunting that's i mean that's yeah. the golden information there and we can cover that for sure again yeah. but i think uh, when it, we talk a lot about calling and a lot yeah. about bugling and cows don't bugle you don't necessarily target them to call them in so there's a lot of a lot of questions about how do i target a cow elk especially during that archery season right and so i'm gonna let you answer most of those <laughs> questions Corey, because <laughs> you do more calling than i do um I, I have a friend in Nevada who every year he applies for a cow elk tag. It's just what he loves to do. Yep. And he hunts them over water in August. And, well, in Nevada, water's a, a scarce commodity. Yeah. So you I, find I, water, you find elk. Yeah. And he uh, he's very, very proficient. His freezer is seldom empty. Uh, and I think it's cool. He gets really excited about it. And it's an early time of the year before any real rut or yeah. bugling's going on. And uh, he's, that's one strategy that people use, especially in these, these dry states of Arizona, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, maybe even parts of Colorado. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I know that sounds overly simplistic. But. And, and honestly, that's as, as we've thought, and we've talked about this podcast, this particular episode for at least four or five months and just, yeah. you know, what, what are we going to talk about? Because you and I don't hunt a lot of cows necessarily. We don't target right. cows right. necessarily. So are we the, the best teachers yeah. on that? But I think 
it comes down to don't make it too complicated. Right. And we're talking early season there. Focus on water. Mm-hmm. During that time of year, that's, that's going to be in those southern states, the desert states, that's going to be their number one need is water. Yeah. And if you focus on a water source, you're going to find elk. Yeah. And it's not too hard to put up a ground blind or a tree stand and sit there. And I mean, it's not the most exciting hunt, <laughs> but at the end of the day, we want to fill a tag. Right. So I think that's for those states, early season, that's, for me, that's what I would suggest very strongly. Yeah. And if you, anyone who wondered about that, it's so easy to see, are they using this water? Yeah. <laughs> it's walk around and you're going to see there a track? tracks everywhere and it, you'll quickly determine, all right, here's some old crusted up tracks. Here's some fresh ones that look like they're almost <laughs> still have moisture in them. And all right, here they go. I mean, last year when I was in New Mexico, it was so hot. We, we had that first archery season, September 1st through the 14th. And it was getting up into the high eighties, low nineties every day. And the only real encounter I had of any elk was sitting in water and these this group of cows came in and it would they were seven eight yards yeah. in front of the blind and if you play the wind and anticipate what the wind's going to be doing when they come in because uh, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, there were I'm well, not I, I am sure there were times going through my head of Randy you might be you might have placed this little cubby you built on the wrong side of the water hole because during the day the wind was coming kind of in an uphill slope taking my wind more towards I thought where the elk might be coming from but as quick as that sun went behind the horizon, and this is why I set up where I did, but I was worried, well, what if they come in early? Middle of the day or something. Yeah. yeah. And maybe they tried to and they smelled <laughs> me, but uh, just expecting, all right, they're going to come in later. Well, when the thermals changed, it couldn't have been a better setup. They yeah. they just came walking right down, splashing and jumping and yeehawing and carrying on. And if I would have set it up the other direction... I don't know that they would have came in during that evening hour. So I, I, I see that as a, a strategy of when you go and sit water, think about what the wind's doing when you think they're going to yeah. come in, not when you get to your blind. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's important to stress again, we talk a lot about wind when we're talking about setting up or calling elk and in that situation I think wind is more critical when you aren't because you aren't mobile anymore. You've got to dial that wind in and make your setup count because you can't get up and move around the hill when the elk start coming in if they're, you know, coming in below you and wind's going down. So Yeah, and kind of like when you do a setup, you're calling in a bull. What does he do? He circles downwind and he might just stand there and watch and listen. And I don't know how many times I've watched groups of elk be coming down off a hill to a water hole and they get... I don't know, 200 yards away, and all of a sudden they make a hard right or a hard left, and yeah. it's like, what are they doing? Oh, they're Sweeping going... Sweeping downwind. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it, it's not a whole lot different than the setup, the, the, the men, you know, how you're thinking out this through. The same way you do with a setup when you're trying to call a bull in. Understand what the wind's going to be doing when they're likely to come in. And, man, I've seen cow elk stand there... I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. Almost like... Surveying it for danger. Yeah. You'd swear it was a a decoy standing (laughs) there. And usually they're depending on the lead cow, and she's leading the troop, and she's just standing there. And 
I, I suspect maybe the wind, maybe it's that period of time when the, the wind's swirling because the, the thermals are switching and stuff. And she probably is getting a lot of information coming oh, from yeah. a lot of sources at that time. And I, I often tell people that you, you, the mindset of an elk is, I just have to live until tomorrow. Yeah. They're in no hurry. They, they don't have a calendar <laughs> that says, you know, I promised my buddy I'd be back down to the trailhead a half hour I've after gotta dark. I've got to get a drink of water now. Yeah. They, so you got to think about the fact that this cow, she's probably one of the older, smarter animals. Probably in the smarter than any bull that you're going to hunt. Yeah. So she's, she's not in any hurry to get shot. Yeah. And if she's got to stand there and, ah, I don't like this, I think I'll go back up in the hill till dark they'll do that or go over the hill to another water source <laughs> yeah and i think so. that's that's a really good point when these elk are coming in they are still paying attention to their senses probably <laughs> even more than when they're coming into calling yeah. because elk every movement they make is made around their senses whether it's moving with the wind in their face whether it's stopping at a at a visual point where they can you know just scan the area and see if there's any danger and when they come into a water source they know i'm going to be spending a few minutes here we're going to splash around we're going to get a drink i've got to make sure there's no danger anywhere around and right. so they'll stop and stare for 10 minutes and make sure nothing's moving they'll circle around downwind and make sure that they you know get a scent of anything that might be dangerous and so the setup's so critical and, yeah. and i think that might be where a tree stand lends itself a little bit more from a visual you can see them coming You've got, you know, you can play your scent a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, ground blinds are handy, though, too, because you can conceal your scent a little bit better, and you just yeah. sometimes don't see the elk until they're on the water hole. But yeah. either one can be effective. I think if an elk sees something out of place all of a sudden, like a ground blind set on the edge of a water hole, that might, you know, I've seen antelope for sure that right. will avoid that water hole just because there's something new there, and they don't. Yeah. I don't trust it. So yeah, the only problem I've seen the, the, is surveying the landscape is in a lot of places setting a tree stand up in a pinion tree <laughs> would be it. Would be yeah, a we're challenge. talking about those desert states where there's no water. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, typically but, there's no big trees either. Right. But another thing is sometimes when you go there, and I do this for bulls also, is you, if you're wondering what the wind is doing. You're trying to predict, okay, what's the wind going to be doing this afternoon? You can almost look at the the entrance trail and the exit trail yeah. that the elk use because they use that same those same trails historically. Uh, so they'll look like beaten cattle paths. Yep. So you can see the tracks going one way when they're coming in. Okay, they're using that as they're coming in. All right, a lot of times, not always, sometimes they use the same trail both ways. Sometimes they have a slightly different trail when they're going out. And that will t give you a pretty good indicator of where the wind is or where it's coming Yeah. when they're coming in and when they're going out because you know they're going to be coming with the wind in their face. So. Yeah. And if uh, I was hunting that style, I would no doubt employ trail cameras yeah just put a trail camera up on a water hole you know exactly what time they're coming and it's usually going to be pretty patternable yeah and you're going to know where they're coming from and and all of that so that's you know that's one thing that maybe you don't have an opportunity to be in the unit before season opens but if you do even if it's just for a day yeah. drive out there and set a couple trail cameras on water holes and then as soon as season starts and you show up to hunt you go check them and yeah. Make your determination from there. Yeah, and when I've hunted, whether it's antelope, whether it's mule deer, whether it's bull elk over with, with water, there's been a lot of times there really wasn't a good setup near the water. Yeah. 
But the trail's coming yep. in. If you examine that trail, there's going to be a corner to that trail. There's going to be some place. It might be 100 yards or 200 yards away from the water. There's going to be a spot that is the perfect ambush place. Yep. And we've always said, you know what, we'd rather be further from the water, take our chances that maybe they're going to use... We hope they're going to use this trail tonight, but okay, maybe they'll use trail number two. But at least we're not going to blow them out of there because if they smell you there, the game is probably over yep. for quite a while. And they're going to remember that smell and they're going to circle <laughs> a little bit wider the next time they come in to see if that danger is still there. Yeah. So I guess the, the point we when we start with this kind of setup thing is don't think that only a bull elk is out there using his nose. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I, I think people have this belief that, oh, cow elk are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and you laugh. Yeah. But you said it earlier, you know, she's probably... The lead cow is probably the smartest elk you will ever hunt. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's kind of a... In my, I just kind of work this through the seasons. Yeah, uh, so early starting. season there, you know, in, in those desert states, that's that's a good tactic. Uh, spot and stock, you know, was, mm -hmm. we hunted New Mexico and it was all grasslands. It wasn't a problem at all to spot elk out there. Right. But, you know, you have, if you have an opportunity to ambush them and stock up on them while they're in their beds, you can see where they're going to bed down. That, that can be effective. No different than hunting mule deer or elk that you yeah. have to spot and stock. Uh, and then when you get into some of the mountain states, you know, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon, uh, as you're looking at cow elk early season, uh, you know, I'll use an example. My dad was an outfitter mm -hmm. and I would say probably 60% of their business was antlerless elk. Oh, wow. And they would go back to one show in Michigan and they would book out their whole season there. And it wasn't a trophy hunt by any means, but it was an elk hunt out West and in Oregon, it's legal to bait animals. And they would really? just put out salt licks. We'd go and salt, you know, Memorial Day weekend, put salt out. And then it was absolute, almost guaranteed in the first part of September. Those cows would just come in there, 20 or 30 of them at a time, hit the salt lick every evening, and huh. they were there. So, I mean, salt <laughs> is an option if it's legal in your state. It's yeah. another source where you can put a... A trail yeah. camera and a tree stand and but i mean that was I, I won't say anything's ever guaranteed but shot opportunities on that hunt on a five or six day hunt you're almost guaranteed to have multiple opportunities to shoot cow elk yeah. early season in oregon and idaho montana is not going to be any different they're very patternable during yeah. that time you might not be able to use bait because most a lot of the states right. don't allow that right. but elk are very patternable you get in you do a little scouting you find where their tracks are where the trails are and you set up a tree stand you know on the downwind side of that trail and it's it's yeah. not going to be hard to get a shot it's going to be hard sometimes to sit in that tree stand for eight <laughs> or ten hours and that that's my downside is i don't have I patience do. i i yeah i'm i'm with you i got ants in my pants where i just i want to be seeing what's coming or what's over the hill and that's probably why i'm such a bad elk hunter. <laughs> but back to that point of patternable, if you think about a cow elk, they they have, they, and I don't care where you want to start the calendar, but let's start with calving season. So they drop that calf in late May, early June. They have to be on the highest possible nutritional plane until all the way through summer yep. into fall because they're lactating, they're nursing this calf. And yeah, pretty soon she's going to be weaned, but then they've got to be building fat reserves like crazy yep. 
to build up what they need to get through this upcoming winter. So with that, if you understand what the preferred food is for cow elk, I don't care what period of the year you're hunting them, you're going to find the greatest likelihood or you're in the places with the best food are going to have the greatest likelihood of having having elk, elk at that time of year. Cow elk there. Yep. And, and I, that changes from season to season. The right. best food during the summer months mm-hmm. isn't going to be the best food in October. Right. And you're going to have, you know, added security that they're going to need then. And I think mm-hmm. when they have their calves, they also want to be someplace safe. Yep. Because predators are looking for those calves. Yeah. And so they want someplace safe, someplace with good feed. And so I just think this time of year, July, August, if you're finding lush grasses, <laughs> you're finding elk. Yeah. And if you can find that, they're going to be in that same area that first part of September because that's that's really where the rut is going to happen is where they have their calves. They typically don't move too much throughout the summer. They're safe. They've got feed unless, you know, sheep move in and eat all the right. feed or there's a lot of pressure. If that doesn't happen, those cows are going to stay there and you're going to be able to hunt them opening weekend of archery seasons. Yeah, and with that, going from there then, just based on the food factor, that, uh, and especially like, I don't know, is it really wet in Idaho oh, this year? Oh my goodness, yeah. It, I mean, I've traveled most of the West this year, and it is the wettest year I can, yep. boy, it's, yeah, which is great. But the a normal year that isn't this wet, you, about early September, some of those forbs that they really like start drying up yep. and they switch to grasses. And a lot of the stuff on maybe more of a southwest or southeast slope start turning really brown. And the stuff more over on the east, west, northeast, northwest, and north slopes stay greener. Yep. So they start making movements to their food sources. It might, I'm not talking like five mile movements, I'm talking like half mile, mile. Yeah, around a knob into another little draw. Right. Yep. All in response to how over the course of the summer into fall, the availability of food, both in terms of its availability and the quality of the food, starts happening in different locations. Yep. I've, I've never seen elk out in early September eating that dried out balsam <laughs> root or whatever that noisy stuff is that always screws up your spot and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? You see them over around a northeast face or a northwest face, and they're back on whatever tall grasses. There's a little seep or something. I was going to say, it's cooler terrain where there's a little bit more moisture, a spring or something, and they still have good green forage back in there. Yeah. it's, And I know that by the time we're done with this, people will probably be tired of us talking about food, food, food. But If you're hunting cow elk, you've got to know the food source. Yeah. And so they, they go from early September. Yeah, the rut's happening, and the bulls are pushing them around but you've pointed this out in other podcasts Corey that for some reason there are certain ridges or certain basins or certain drainages that that's where they all congregate to rut yep and there might be the exact same feed the exact same sanctuary everything that they might need in addition to to where they are in three different places but for whatever reason every fall they go to this one place and that's yeah. You know, it's just their habit. That's, yeah. that's where they go. So if that's where they're at, and it's September 12th, do you ever call them in? 
I, I know that's so, what someone's. So the, here's what people are saying. I, yeah. I can. I'm putting myself in the listener's position. All right, Corey, you've walked me through the early part. It's now September 12th, and I see that basin you're talking about. And there's a whole bunch of cows and some bulls running around there. All I have is a cow tag. How do I call that cow alkin? Yeah. Talk a lot about calling in bulls, and that's easy because yeah. bulls bugle, and we get aggressive with them, and we can challenge them. And can right. you challenge a cow elk? Yeah. So no, I think, you know, and this is coming. I won't say from limited experience, but from from a standpoint of targeting cows, my experience is limited. Mm-hmm. But from a standpoint of being with cows, observing cows, calling when there are cows around, and all that, I think you know we've I've spent a great deal of time there and, and observed a lot, and. I probably, if it was me and I had a cow tag, I wouldn't change a thing. I would approach it just like I call a bull. I would target the bull for calling and I'd just be looking to fill my cow tag when a cow comes through there. Because typically, and I'll be, I'm working on a module for the University of Elk Hunting about hunting cow elk. And we're gonna include that in there and you know, some of these details. And the nice thing about uh, within the University of Elk County is we can include video clips and everything. Right. But I've gone back through our footage and everything from the last couple seasons. I think I've had more opportunities to shoot a cow elk and I've had to shoot a bull elk. Yeah. <laughs> Just from hunting the bull elk, yeah. the, you're gonna get opportunities at cows. So calling aggressively, getting in there, trying to get the bull to come by, more often than not, a cow's gonna come through first. You know, yeah. they're leading the bull, you're getting in position to be able to call that bull in. They're either gonna push a cow through there or the cow's gonna come running in there to, to see what's going on. So that would be my primary uh, focus and strategy for hunting cow elk is hunt them just like a bull. Yeah. Go and target a bull, find a bull that's bugling, call the bull in, do everything you'd wanna to do to call that bull in. And when he comes in, you're gonna find yourself in the middle of the herd and you're usually gonna have opportunities on a cow. Yeah. The other thing that, that uh, has worked really well is if you do a lost calf call. Uh-huh. Cows are gonna... very protective <laughs> of any calf, not just their own, but they hear a lost calf crying and they're like, I gotta go help that, that calf out. And so just a lost calf, which a calf sound versus a cow sound is just a little higher pitch, a little shorter. And you just add, again, that emotion. We talk about calling with emotion. And when you're giving that, that signal that I'm a lost calf, you've got to sound scared. You've got to sound, you know, like I'm all alone. I got separated from the herd. Mom, help me. Yeah. And put that into those calf calls. And I can't tell you how many times we've done that. And it fires a bull up, but it's usually a cow that shows up there first looking for that calf. And getting yeah. ready to bring it back to the herd. So those would be my two primary strategies for calling is approach it like you're calling a bull, be aggressive, get in there, set up, get as close to the herd as you can, call it in, and you're probably going to call in four or five bulls that might be satellite bulls that don't come with any cows, but you're going to have an incredibly exciting hunt and you're going to have opportunities at a cow. Yeah, and this is just uh, kind of spinning off what you're saying. You've said there about hunt like you're hunting bulls. I think about the number of times where I've been following a herd, and it's like, okay, there's they're bedded. Oh man, I hear a cow over here that's 250 yards away. I try to get between that straggler cow. Yeah. And the herd thinking maybe she's got a bull that she's going to drag past me. Yep. Um, And I might let one cow call out just to let her know, hey, you got a friend over here. 
the number of times, usually it's just a solo <laughs> cow. It doesn't have the bull straggling along with. But the number of times she comes walking along or trotting sometimes even on her way. And then I, I think there's obviously this comfort of, okay, I know there are more of my oh, siblings yeah. and my family over here. That's where they're at. And so kind of like sometimes you try to get between two bulls or you try to get between a bull and his what you think is his cow. Yep. The same thing you can do with, with cows, with those, those ones. Because it's not like every cow walks through the woods in one cluster. There's stragglers and there's some adventurous one that, you know, I like to eat whatever it is up there. And yep. it strays off 150 yards from the herd. And they're going to be in the same general area. But if you use the wind to your favor, I... Uh, I think that's where I've had most of my encounters where I could have shot a cow yeah. with my bow. And it was usually in hopes that she's going to bring a bull by. Yep. Well, you just look, when we hunted together in Montana, was that four years ago? Uh, three years ago. Three years yeah. ago. That first evening, well, the bull four, we called. It was four years four ago. Four years Holy ago cow. this year. Yeah. Time wow. flies. So that bull that came in the first evening that mm-hmm. I passed up that you gave me a really hard time about. Yeah. What was right in front of him? Mm-hmm. A cow. cow. She she came in to the calling setup first. The bull was coming to us. The cow wasn't getting away from him. He was pushing the cow. So the cow's in front of him. Could have shot her all yeah. night long. Yeah. The bull on the last day that I ended up missing, he yeah. had eight or nine cows, and there were three cows closer to me than the bull was when I shot at the bull. So, again, opportunities there. Last year in Oregon, when we were hunting Roosevelt, the only shot I got at a bull, I had two cows walk within 10 yards of me while we were set up calling the bull in. So I just, I wouldn't change a thing. If I was wanting to hunt a, a cow, I would bring in all of the excitement of calling and bugling to the bull mm-hmm. and just shoot a cow when it comes in. Yeah. So I know it sounds simple. And like Randy said at the beginning, you're, you're probably listening, thinking, okay, yeah, this, this is really simple. I thought of that. I want, I want real meat and potatoes here, but... Right. Don't overcomplicate it. Yeah. That's that's really that would be my strategy, and I I would be confident that it would be a, a successful strategy. Yeah, I I think cows are more predictable for a couple of reasons. One, their need doesn't change as much as a bull. Yep, they aren't pressured as much. So even though they're still smart, people are very careful as a general rule, at least in archery season. About I don't want to bump them. I don't yeah. want to bump them. You get the that are the satellites or the bull moving back and forth he's likely to encounter more humans than the cows are and so that leads to a more consistent behavior i think in cows food 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 (laughs) food and more food uh and therefore it it probably allows for a more consistent approach in how you're gonna hunt them yeah and I don't know. I, I'm sure some people are like, well, that's that's not what I tuned in for. I was either. hoping for some actual helpful yeah. advice here. Right. And if anyone tuned in thinking that, you know, cow elk hunting is you're, you're going to call them in and somehow because you use a bugle, a cow is going to come bugle back in your face. That's yeah. it's just. <laughs> and I'll, I will say elk are a very vocal, communicative animal. And if you hear a cow making cow sounds and you start cow calling, a lot of times just that's going to bring her in to say, hey, are you part of my herd or I lost my herd? You know, I feel more security around you. And so I I certainly wouldn't stray away from that, strictly focusing on cow calling a cow in. But I think I I would opt more for hunting bulls and looking for those opportunities. And with that being said, I think efficiency wise, 
you're going to be better off finding a travel route and setting up a tree stand or a ground blind if you're able to handle that boredom boredom <laughs> all day. I think efficiency-wise, you can all kill right. an elk in one or two days. I won't say easily, but yeah. if you know there are elk in the area, you set up a trail camera and see where they're walking and what time, it's not going to be too yeah. awful difficult. Yeah, I, I would say it, it's kind of like a lot of things. Sometimes the most effective technique may not be the most fun technique. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're in it to have fun, well, then you're probably going to chase them and bugle them and spot and stalk them or whatever. If it's like, oh, I'm serious about filling tags here, well then ambushing them is probably going to be yeah. uh, a little more effective. But and The other benefit of, of hunting cow elk, or at least the advantage of hunting cows over bulls, is I would say there's 10 to 1 cows to bulls right. you know, on, on average <laughs> out there. So just the odds of bumping into an animal, it's, it's a lot higher that it's going to be a cow you bump into. Yeah. Well, and one other thing is that, you know, at least in September and early October, while well, they're still bugling, uh, that's a pretty good indicator of where the cows yeah. are. You know, not always, but a bull that's really piping up and, and wound up, there's probably some cows yeah. nearby. <laughs> it's like, hey, come over here if you want to see some cows. Yep. Uh, so if you're hearing that and you're hunting antlerless elk, don't say, oh, that's a bull and move on. He's probably, the cows are probably saying, shut up, you yeah. knucklehead. Follow, follow the bugles. <laughs> yeah, what, what are you trying to do, get us killed there? <laughs> yep. And they probably so, say the same thing about wolves, you know. The, yeah. I, I always say to a, to a wolf, a bugle's a dinner bell. Mm -hmm. And when we approach it the same way, that if you, hear a, if you hear an elk bugle, there's probably more than just that one bull there, and you probably need to get yourself closer and investigate. Yeah. Well, I... I once you get beyond that time of year, I don't want to oversimplify either, but as the weather turns and gets colder, the the amount of quality forage that's on the hill or on the landscape gets less and less and less. And the both in terms of quality and volume. And so the cows have fewer and fewer options to keep themselves on that highest nutritional plane. Yep. So the... And you see that in the herds, the herd dynamics, they start combining. Yeah. And the cows come together because the food narrows down to one area. So you right. just get all these herds coming into the same area. And right. You go from herds of five to eight to all of a sudden herds of 30 and 40. Yeah. And it's, I know when I say this, people are going to be like, no, that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> but I do think cow elk are way easier to find in from October 15th on. Yeah. Because if you keep thinking and focusing on food, 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 where the food is available and how much they need, and, and then now they're pregnant again. Yep. And so... They have and, to have feed. They're building up for winter. Right. They're, they're building their own bodies back to where, after all the lactating, and they got to build their bodies to carry this calf. Through the winter. Through the when winter. When there's going to be limited feed. Yeah. So you'll see them up feeding way earlier than the bulls. Yep. They'll or, uh, come out way earlier in the afternoon, and they'll be up later into the morning than the bulls feeding. Yep. They just, it's just a function of what they have to do to allow their bodies to carry this calf. 
Yeah. And that's their real purpose. I mean, <laughs> they're pretty simple animals. Yeah, they that's what they're wired for. They sleep, they drink water, they sleep, yeah. they eat, right. they have a calf, they yeah. raise a calf, they kick the calf. I mean, yeah, it's, right. I think sometimes yeah. we overcomplicate it. And when we break it down into the simplest form of what the elk is doing, how the elk is staying alive, that's really all you need to know. And once you overcome how the elk is staying alive, and once you figure out what they're doing for food, it's just a matter of going in there and making the shot. Yeah. And it's not like they decide, oh, I, I food's my primary focus just because I like to eat. <laughs> it is their number one goal, their motivation. They are wired that this calf that I'm getting through the summer and then this calf I'm carrying in my body, that's my priority. Yep. And in order to accomplish that priority, it all go, comes back to food. Yep. So yeah. it was interesting for me where we live, we've got a, a decent sized herd that makes its way down from fall to winter, you know, and stays down on the flats there. And it's always interesting to see, you never see them. They're just, I mean, it's hard to find them from like October 15th through say November 5th or November 10th, somewhere in there. I mean, they're, they're in sanctuary mode then. They're mm-hmm. trying to get away from the rifle pressure, rifle seasons during that exact time. As soon as rifle season ends, they come out of the woodwork and they are eating everything kind of at that mid-mountain place. They're on their way down the mountain. Mm -hmm. They all combine right there and the herds go from, you know, the bulls in that area probably have three to four cows on average each during the fall. And then all of a sudden there's 90 elk together right behind our house, 90 cows and, you know, a couple spikes and the smaller bulls all concentrated together, all feeding there. And they stay there for about two weeks and then they disappear and they go about two miles down the valley they hit the flats, and that's where they stay for the winter. And so you, you do, you see that feed availability shift, and those elk absolutely shift their needs, and they shift their locations where they're finding the best feed, and yeah. they try to hold out as long as they can up there, knowing that if we go down too early in the winter range, right. we're going to eat ourselves out of food there. So we've got to get every bit of edible food here mid-mountain before we drop down. And just understanding, you know, it, it's something you don't, go out there and scout for three days and be like, okay, I understand what elk are doing throughout the year now. It's something that it's year after year of being there and seeing it that, yeah. Like, but once you get that dialed in, it's pretty easy to pattern. Hey, there's a short range weapon season that happens November 10th through November 24th. The elk are going to be right here. I'm going to be there and ready for them. Yeah. Well, you make a good point about how they move from the I'll call the summer range to the winter range, which that that whatever distance or area landscape that they travel from summer to winter, we always call transition range. And in a year like this, so just talking about the variabilities of drought versus moisture, yeah. in a year like this, they're going to stay up as high as they possibly can, back to your point of, they want to make sure they've cropped off all the good stuff as high as possible, saving the stuff lower for later when the snow comes. So you might have seen elk in a drought year that are quite a ways down the transition range because that's just where the food may have been or because of an early snow or whatever it might be. A year like this, there's going to be a lot of food on that transition range when it's this moist, and they will stay up there as high as the weather allows them to. Yep. So they might get to the winter ranges later. Because they real, have more food. Right. And, and, and it really depends. If it's a late winter and the heavy snows don't fall, they have no reason to go to that winter range because there's abundance of feed Else. in that transition. Yeah. 
And that's so. something I think, you know, that's worth mentioning also and pointing out is you think about all the feed that's up high this year, but what I've found is when the cows have their calves, wherever they are when they have their calves, that's typically where they're going to be throughout the rest of the summer and into the first part of the, the rut. Yeah. And on a heavy winter like this, where we had a, a very mild spring, so the snow stayed on longer, sometimes depending on the area and the elevation, those cows can't make it back up to where they normally are because the snow is still there right. and the feed just hasn't got lush and green. So they're at a lower elevation. So sometimes that affects the rut and where you're going to find the bulls and the cows in September might be down canyon three or four miles at a lower elevation. And it would, you would think it would be opposite. There's more feed up high. Why not? Why wouldn't they be up there? But it really, I think, in especially the mountain states, those, those cows will tend to stay where they have their calves. And if they aren't able to get up to their normal calving area because of snow, sometimes it'll be a lower elevation where the rut will actually take place. Yeah. And then I think about some places where they don't migrate a lot like they do in the mountain states and Arizona comes to yeah. mind where they're in the Ponderosa forest with lots of great grass this time of year. Uh, the grass starts to dry, turn a little brown into October and whatever. And they will go, they will move into places with other feed sources. And the one that always strikes me in Arizona is Cliffs Rose. It's, really? Yeah. I see so many cow elk in places with uh, manzanita and cliffs rose after, and it's not like a, I see them there in a ton of snow. It's like, well, why would they have moved 1,500 <laughs> to 2,000 feet of elevation and five miles with such great predictability and density? Yeah. When I, and I just think about this spot where we've hunted before and the number of cow elk that are in those areas that have, uh, I said manzanita, I mean mahogany. Did I say manzanita? You said manzanita, oh, yeah, I'm, which... I'm sorry, I meant mahogany. Uh, but uh, in these areas with mahogany and cliffs roads, and you'd look at it, it's really thick cover. You're like, oh, there aren't any elk here, but there's a lot of tracks. All of a sudden, when they decide that it's time to get up and feed, it's like an anthill. Come out, out of there. the woodwork. Yeah. There. You're like, holy smokes. So well, it's it's mahogany and what? Cliffs rose. Cliffs rose. Yeah. Some people call it cliff rose. Some call it cliffs rose. It's a almost like a woody plant that grows, but it's got something on the leaf. So are they that, eating the leaf or are they eating the eating ends the of the buds? The, the bud. I think, well, the, if you look at an image of it, there's almost like a... When it comes off the stem, off the main, uh, there's a leaf that has like a bud. Mm -hmm. It's it's a soft part. It's the, almost like a wild rose yeah. type of a plant. Yeah, but it it's, man, I've seen them in there just mowing that stuff down. And you drive by and you'd say like, well, there, this is, doesn't look like elk habitat. And then it's like, holy cow. Yeah. Um, and I just use that in, as an example. In Nevada, I've seen them come down lower into these big juniper flats and pinion juniper flats. And I've seen them just grazing heavy on juniper berries. Really? Yeah. I mean, just like <laughs> crazy. And well, why would they do that? Well, maybe it was a drought year and the grasses aren't really what they needed. And they've decided that the juniper berries are a better risk reward or cost benefit. Yep. 
relationship. And everything in their analysis is how do I get the greatest reward for the lowest risk? How do I get the greatest benefit at the lowest cost? I mean, the greatest net gain in nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I tell people, I think uh, if you want to be a, a, a stock investor, you should follow the pattern of cow elk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're risk averse. Here we go. Here we go. Financial advice linked back to hunting cow elk. <laughs> and cost benefits. So they, they have to. I mean, yep. they, they're not going to expose themselves to predators. Say all food sources across the landscape are equal at this time of year. Then they're going to say, all right, how do I expose myself to less predator risk with hunting and hunters being one of those predators? Yep. Well, that's part of what goes into their mindset. And in places where there's a lot of cow elk hunting, guess what? They will use a sanctuary of private land or something else, the same as bull elk do. Yep. Just It's back to that basic analysis of what's my highest reward with my least risk and my least amount of expended energy. Yeah. It's, it's a net sum game for them. <laughs> and the ones that don't figure that out, that, that trait of not figuring that out gets removed from the genetic pool. Totally. Quickly. Yeah. So, um, well, I'm going back to feed sources. I think that's, that's so important. It's so hard for us to sit here and, we get a lot of questions about, you talk a lot about finding the feed, but what do elk eat? Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to answer that question because they eat something different in just about every state yeah. in every season of, of the yeah. elk year. And so right. it's hard to sit down and say, okay, look for willows, look for clumps of grass, look for you know whatever it is because it's so dynamic, yeah. even in one area, but especially throughout the different terrains and you know in idaho when we were shed hunting this spring it was it was really amazing to see how the elk lived in deep snow and fed off of the willows along the creek bottom they were they were stuffed right in these creek Hmm. bottoms and you could see where they had nibbled it off anything from probably three sixteenths inch in diameter on down was eaten off all the way to that diameter and they're just eating literally the ends of the willows the ends of the branches off of any of the green uh woody type of brush that grows up in those creek bottoms they were eating the actual branches off to about that diameter because they're the softer they haven't actually turned into that woody branch yet yeah they're eating that off and that's what they lived off throughout the winter there there wasn't green leaves on anything there wasn't browse there wasn't any green grass anywhere it's just that was their food source and so understanding that and i don't understand even in in my state what they eat specifically in each of the seasons but i've just I think recognized where they are in each of those seasons enough to say we need to be at this elevation, we need to be, you know, on this side of the mountain and yeah. figuring it out from there. Yeah. Well, oh, one of the places I love to hunt when I get a tag is western New Mexico or northern Arizona. And a lot of that isn't as much uh alpine to valley type terrain as we have in like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado. Um, and so I've really tried to make my hunting understand the the change of what is the, the most preferred food source on the landscape almost looks similar in terms yeah. of altitude, elevation, in terms of canopy. So why would they move from here to over there four miles away? And overnight, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's almost uh, so. It's, uh, 
I'll, I'll use, boy, I'm, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but there, <laughs> there's a study out there. I'm going to let people find this study, but it, there's a super, where, super, where would they go to look for this study? Uh, Al Gore's internet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, is, it, it is really good. Uh, and it talks about the certain types of grasses in Arizona and New Mexico when the monsoons come. So those grasses are borderline dormant until about now in July. Monsoons start in July. All of a sudden, this grass is across the landscape. It's it's why sometimes that place is so green. Yeah. Well, that grass has a certain cycle that by probably the end of October, it's no longer the preferred food source. They've moved to other places away from the grass because it's browned up, it's dried up. And obviously it fluctuates based on the intensity of the monsoon season. Yep. Now they're in certain other places and this survey, this study talks about what those other, where they move to select a higher quality forage. And it's back to the cow says, if I'm gonna be out in the daylight exposing myself to danger, that grass is okay, but it's stale now. This over here, this forb, this whatever it is, I'm getting more nutritional value out yep. of that. So I'm going to hang out over there. Yeah, it's four miles away. I can walk four miles to be to hang out there for the next three weeks until that food source, same landscape, that food source starts to dwindle and loses its value. And now there's something else that they prefer to. Yep. So I've... I can't say that I've got it all figured out. But the point is, wherever it is you hunt and you're hunting cow elk, there are studies out there that are unbelievable about what the food nutritional source is at certain times of the year. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you look at humans, and I think in the last few years, we've started looking more closely at what we're putting in our bodies mm-hmm. and wanting to be most efficient. and wanting to figure out macronutrients and the things that we need, you know, as far as carbohydrates and calories and all of those things, elk have had that figured out for years. And they know this time of year, this is going to be the most nutrient-rich available food source. And that's where they go to. And I just, as you were talking, I thought we were driving home the other night and there was some horses and cows, some cattle just in a pasture area and almost every one of them had their heads stuck through the fence reaching the grass on the outside you know you hear the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence yeah and as you were talking i thought you know cow elk are going to eat all of the food at higher elevations before they transition knowing that they're going to need that food that's right there and and available to them in the coming months and this other food's not going to be and you know you look at cattle and you think man they're stupid they have food right there but maybe they're Maybe they're thinking ahead and thinking, if I can get that food out there now, I can leave this here, this easier food for when I really get hungry. And Yeah. And I, I, we did a, a film up in Alaska with a biologist. Her name is Sophie Gilbert. She's got a PhD. She researches deer more than anything. And she put it in a really good context. We're talking about the migratory patterns of alpine Sitka blacktails. She said, think about it this way. As quick as this, some period in the fall when the forage dries up, the nutritional value has reduced to a point where now this doe, or in this case a cow elk, is starving between now and when it greens yeah. up again in the spring. So her, her goal is, I know I'm going to be starving 
for from the next November first until March first or whatever the period is. Right. So I have to just make sure I don't starve at a rate that's so fast that I deplete my. She called it a bank account. Yep. So I can take a little out of my savings, and she said all this fat on their rump and their back and everything. <laughs> it's kind of like they got to build that savings account up. Yep. Because for the next however many months, depending on what you know landscape they live on, they are withdrawing from that savings account. And if they get to March and they're out of fat, they're out of savings, they're going to die. Yep. And you look at, and if you look at a, a deer, we'll talk, talk about deer because elk, I think, are a little more hardy. Mm-hmm. And they, elk can sure. survive a little better than deer, but deer are a great example of that rump fat and the fat mm-hmm. along their back. They don't have that in January. That's no. gone. Right. And now they're living off of the visceral fat, the fat around their organs. And that's their second reserve tank. Yep. When that's gone, they start living off of marrow, like literally mm-hmm. inside their bones. They're living off of the nutrition that's left in there, and they're depleting that. Yep. And if there's not a food source when that's depleted, they die. They starve right. to death. And we saw a few years ago, there was a really early rain in Idaho, and the mule deer were all concentrated on the winter range. And got an early rain, then it got really warm and it was really nice, and a bunch of grass came up. And we drove up through there, and there were mule deer laying dead everywhere. Really? And so I stopped a biologist. They were up there, obviously, concerned about it as well. And I said, how does this happen? There's an abundance of feed for February or March this time of year that we usually don't have. And he explained it that they'd used up all their reserves, and this green grass came up, and they came out and gorged themselves on it, and there was no nutritional value in those grasses mm. and their body used more energy to digest that food than what they were getting net out of it. And they literally ate themselves to death eating something that had no nutrition in it. Wow. And so, you know, elk are, elk are a tougher animal. They don't, right. I think, go to that level most of the time, but I think it, it paints the same picture of what's going on there that they're literally starving for five months. They're just trying to reduce the, the rate of starvation to the point that yeah. they're still alive when food is available again. Yeah, that, that's really what it comes down to. And uh, the, there's, there are studies that are they're in process, they're not completed yet, that are talking about how our transition ranges have been changing over decades here as the result of warmer temperatures. And it, some of the baseline stuff that they have plucked from back in the 60s and 70s, uh, as primitive as the collaring technology was then, <laughs> uh, they still have some data that shows the, the green line in the spring, if you want to call it that, where the snow is melting and there's that really immediate band yep. of new, green, wonderful nutrition. They used to be able to use that to slowly go up the the transition range to the summer range because it would happen very slowly. Now, over however many decades that uh, we've had changing weather patterns or whatever you want to call it, that green line and that snow line has been accelerating up the transition range way faster. So they go they they don't spend as much time on the on the. Uh, transition range on their way up right and so the they aren't getting they're moving up that transition range now way faster they're not getting the benefit of just this 
continual succession yeah. of super, super nutritious tomorrow, stuff. Tomorrow, the next nutrition stuff is going to be 100 yards e- up the hill. Exactly. It's all of a sudden, tomorrow, we've got 400 yards up there we can get to. and Right. And so now, pretty soon, they're on the summer ranges quicker than they used yeah. to be before. And you're depleting the, the summer range is quicker. The nutritional plane is, is less as, as that happens. And then there, the, I think these studies are going to show, and the reason I say I think is uh, I've had the benefit of talking to some of these people, and scientists will never, unless they're at a 99% confidence <laughs> level, they're not going to publish something. But anyhow, one of the things that's showing is that they're worried uh, that this lower nutritional plane as they've had to get up to the summer range a lot faster, they aren't recovering as quickly and they're coming into cycle in later than, mm-hmm. than before. And so then the, they start expanding on all these other complications that come from that. Okay, what if we have a very drawn out rut? Well, then we're going to have a very drawn-out calving period. Instead of this big pulse that happens over 10 days to two weeks, we have more of just a bubble that spans five or six weeks. Well, players and wolves can only eat so many calves in a 10-day to two-week period. Until they get big enough to defend themselves and get away from danger. Right. Well, now, if you're dropping calves in smaller numbers but over a longer period of time, the black bears and the grizzly bears and the wolves are like, oh man, instead of just two weeks of good grub here, we got six weeks. <laughs> and so it's it an am- all day buffet. Right. Instead, you don't have to go in there and finish it in an hour. You've got all day to yeah. get as much to eat as you want. Yeah. And so it amplifies the effects of predation. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to read that stuff. And when I read it and talk to these people, my mind keeps coming back to quality of forage, quality yeah. of forage. The, the, when they study this herd or that herd, the herds that have access or whether it's access to or the lead cow who knows where the best food is, they could be in the same general area, but some of those herds aren't expressing these same characteristics yep. as the others. And obviously that leaves more questions unanswered <laughs> than it does answer. But it, the, in reading those, what you find out is that most everything in the elk world revolves around the health herd of the cow. And that revolves around the quality and quantity of forage Available. she can acquire. Yep. So I, know, and it's, it's interesting because we spend a lot of time out in elk country in the spring doing shed hunting okay. and, and that and so it's it's interesting to see where you find sheds year after year and you typically think that it's based on snow line you know the bulls are the first ones they're following that snow line right up and literally as a green little clump of grass comes up they're eating that and it really does you know i've noticed in the last few years the bulls are able to move before they even drop their antlers. Sometimes they're moved clear up out of where they've spent the winter. Really? This year was different. This year there was a lot of snow. The snow line was low and it was a slow melt. It was a mild spring. So we didn't get that huge melt off where it's just like all of a sudden overnight, you can go a mile farther up on the mountain. Now it was slow and their transition was a lot more gradual. And I think that's what we were seeing, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. And we've had a lot of a lot of springs where the snow just leaves overnight. Yeah. And the elk can, and they do, go straight from that winter range as high as they can go immediately. And they aren't taking that time and eating the available feed along the way. Right. And part of that is uh, as, the, as fast as that snow line goes, 
there's just not the available exactly. feed like there used to be. So Yeah, and they need sunshine. You know, when that snow melts, sunshine is what makes the green grasses come up. Yeah. And if you've got a lot of just cloudy, rainy days throughout the spring, it's still melting the snow, but it's not producing the nutrients the same way that sun does. So weather plays a big part in that. Yeah. So I, I had it that down. That was a rabbit hole. That was a rabbit <laughs> hole, but I, I wanted, uh, and maybe people don't care, the lens through which I see cow elk, but I wanted to give some background about what confirms to me everything related to cow elk is food. Yeah. And the best food that they can get at whatever time of year it is. And you were saying earlier that, okay, the best food might be over here in July, but that might not be where the best food is in October. Yeah. So you just... You, <laughs> I know people are like, I've heard enough about food already. <laughs> well, I, you, you should almost become a botanist yeah. if you want to be an elk. And I, I was going to mention, I think that there would be a lot of value in the book that we've talked about, you know, North American Elk. Yeah. What's El, elk and Elk Ecology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, initially we thought it was a $200 book that you could only find in certain places. And we've, <laughs> we've since found, we, we get no kickback at all. There is oh. no connection to us promoting this book other than it's a several thousand page encyclopedia of more than you will ever be able to absorb in elk knowledge, their yeah. transitions, their migrations, their feed sources, all of that. And so if you truly want to, to learn more about elk, I would strongly suggest that yeah. book needs to be yeah. on everybody's coffee table. Yeah, it's uh, by Jack Ward Thomas, and you can get it from the Wildlife Management Institute now for like sixty dollars. I think it's of like forty, forty-one it? or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I see they keep reprinting it, and I'm thinking, is it because so many of us <laughs> have been preaching it for the last couple of years as kind of the Bible of, yeah. of elk? Well, elk and elk ecology. And there um, for a while, you could only, the only place you could find it is like on eBay, and it was a hundred and sixty dollars. Yeah, crazy. Now that they've reprinted it, there's definitely been a a supply yeah. available. So. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, kind of similar to that, some other places to get really good information and research on elk, cow elk, any elk is there's a, the Forest Service in partnership with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has a thing called the Starkey Experimental yeah. Forest in Oregon. And they've been doing research there forever. They actually have their own elk herd it is so habituated to humans, one of, one of these herds, that, that they can follow them around and mingle with the elk and identify, oh, she just <laughs> ate a XX clover. Yep. Oh, she just ate, you know, whatever And this is the date. They, and they're yeah. eating it on this date, and tomorrow they're eating something different. Right. And, and oh, within this transect, that was only 3% of the forage base here, but they ate every bit of that 3%. Oh. Yep. So, if... If you really want to nerd out on this stuff, it's there. What, was that the experiment and the Start. information that you were referring to earlier? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, there's right. a different so one. There, there's more information this out there one, that someone this, could this search. This other one that I'm referring to was done by a university that shall remain unnamed. Uh, is, there I, a gen, is there a general location that... Yeah. Like, it's in the, one of the southwest states. Okay. Uh -oh. So we've narrowed it down to New Mexico, Arizona, <laughs> or Nevada, and it's done by a university, and you can find it on Al Gore's internet. So. Yeah. Uh, I, and I don't mean to be that way. I just... I think... Well, Part of the benefit of people learning to go and do this research is yeah. 
There's way more benefit in learning how to do that than for someone to just tell you. Teach a man to fish. There you go. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So we can give you the information, but I think you'll absorb it yeah. much more uh, efficiently if you do the research. Yeah. And uh, we're here to shorten the learning curve. We aren't here to deliver a successful elk tag on a silver platter <laughs> quite yet. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, we're sitting here in Big Sky, Montana, Corey. And uh, before we wrap this up, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is just such a great organization. Uh, We just came off of the Park City event where they had Elk Camp and the Mountain Festival. And some of the information that, you know, was was delivered there, some of the projects they've been involved in, it's just, it's staggering when you sit back and look at not just what their mission is, but what they're accomplishing. The legs that are underneath it and the, the momentum, the snowball effect that's happening right now with just property after property being acquired and given to public management to be able to open access and just, I mean, volunteer hours, the 12,000 volunteers who are boots on the ground yeah. doing stuff for elk and elk habitat. It's just, it's exciting. Yeah. And for me, this always takes me back to when I first, I, I became a member of the Elk Foundation in 1989, but I didn't really become a volunteer until 1992. And it has to do with right here in Big Sky, Montana. If you drive south of Bozeman, Big Sky is on the west side of the Gallatin River, uh, about 35, 40 miles south of Bozeman. Well, there's a wildlife range, game management range, right over here on the east side of the highway, straight across from the entrance into Big Sky. And that, when I first moved here in 1991, that was only about mm, 1,200 acres. And then... because of the old days when the railroad companies, timber companies, mining companies, the federal government gave them every other section of land if you'd go and build railroads and roads and communities and whatever. And so it created this checkerboard pattern. Well, one of the places that was checkerboarded was what's called the porcupine drainage right over here. And it's just unbelievable wildlife habitat. The amount of elk hunting days that go on there. Well. All the trails going in there, either the trail going up to Windy Pass, the trail going north into Portal, the trail going south into Buffalo Horn, all the way to Yellowstone Park, crossed all these checkerboard pieces. Well, in 1993, uh, an out-of-state group came in and bought all this from Plum Creek. Plum Creek got it from the old railroad, the railroad companies. They put all their land in uh, a holding company, which called, I think it was Great Northern or Burlington Northern, one of them anyhow, formed Plum Creek. Well, they out, Plum Creek, how we, when they were a timber company, man, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, everybody just go access it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Well, along comes this group, bought all of their land in this part of Montana, a couple Shut hundred thousand acres, yeah, and closed it. <laughs> and so all of the important trails that I was talking about went across these deeded sections. We lost, and it was like, oh no, what a train wreck. This is, this is terrible. Yeah. Along comes Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and them and some of their partners. The Elk Foundation, I always want to say, hey, we do this with any other, yeah. par- any willing partner. So uh, I say State Elk Foundation. agencies, other conservation agencies. Right, yeah, other land trusts. Uh, but in this part of the, the country, the Elk Foundation swings a big stick and they convinced uh the montana delegation to go to the land and water conservation fund 
and work to get an appropriation because Elk Foundation and a couple other groups stuck their neck out and bought that land, got, a, got an option to buy that land up Porcupine. And I think it was in 1995 it got closed. And so now it's amazing winter range. I think over a thousand elk winter there. But the amount of hunting days up there is a lot yeah. for, for mountain goat, for deer, for you name it. And so just sitting here in Big Sky, Montana and thinking about the Elk Foundation. <laughs> and the Elk Foundation doesn't own that No, land. they don't own it. And they, that's, I think, a misconception. A lot right. of people think they're raising all this money, they're purchasing land, so it's still private land. It's no. just they're opening it to access. They purchase the land, and then right. they find a way to give it to public management so right. that it's either state land or national forest or BLM or whatever it is. Yep. That land is our land now. Yeah. So, yeah. so what happened here is the lower stuff that could be added to the wildlife management area, that got given to the state of Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks managed by them. And all the rest of it is now part of Gallatin National Forest. Yep. You go park there now, there is no gate on the trail. <laughs> you can hike as far as your energy and boots want to carry you. All the way and to Yellowstone spray. and Bear Spray. <laughs> so I, I just bring that up because the Elk Foundation is such an important part of our podcast and you and I are I guess we have a missionary cause about elk and elk conservation. Yeah. And I just And it goes back to what we've always believed in. It's we aren't just taking money from the Elk Foundation to be a sponsor of the podcast. It's something right. we a hundred percent believe in from the beginning and said, Hey, right. is there an opportunity for us to work together and help spread the message? Because my again, I'll share it. My belief is everybody who buys an elk license should be a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And yeah. if you're not, that's a $35 investment in your elk hunting future yeah. that needs to be made. So yeah. you, you've got a, a promotion going on right now. Yeah, that, until supplies last. Yep, until uh, supplies last. Yeah. Until they don't last. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> until supplies don't last. Yeah. Uh, right now, if you go to rmef.org forward slash Gerber, our good friends at Gerber who make this podcast possible. Yep. Uh, you sign up to be a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation member. For $35. For $35. They're going to send you a $40 Gerber Vital knife. Yep. With Plus three replaceable blades. Subscription to Bugle Magazine. Yep. I mean, it, the value you're getting out of this is, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. But the fact that, what, 90-some percent of your dollars are going on the ground to, to conserve elk. And yeah, that's, if yeah. you're an elk hunter and listening to this and aren't a member of the Elk Foundation, yeah. just go do it. Yeah, that's, please. Yeah, yeah. You think about the things you spend $35 on over the course of a year. And the value of that thirty-five dollars <laughs> don't get you any closer to successful elk hunting. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, my list is really long that I blow money on. That <laughs> is not gonna not gonna get me any closer to killing an elk, but I blow the money on it anyhow. Yep. So, awesome. well, I well, hope this helps yeah, answer some say, of the questions just, about cow elk. I, I feel like there's just not a a, a technical bank to draw from, a technical reservoir right. of information to draw from for cow elk hunting. So yeah. for those of you who are wondering, to, to summarize, don't complicate it. Yeah. Look for the feed sources, figure out what the elk are doing that time of year. And if it's preseason, sit water, that's their need. If it's during the pre-rut, 
calling will work, but focus on calling the bulls. If it's in the rut, just getting close to the herd and there's enough chaos going on that you're going to have encounters. So we get into the rifle season, you know, I think that's probably the best time because they're all coming together. The herds are getting bigger. They're going to be easier to find where they are at on that day. And yep. And by then you're rifle hunting anyway, right. so all you have to do is see them. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll find. I, I say that no. now. We'll find out because you and I get an opportunity to hunt with a rifle this year, and it's yeah, it'll be. I think my first rifle elk hunt. If I if I'm not neglecting anything, I think it'll be my first rifle elk hunt in the last 18 years. Yeah. Well, so. where we're going, I'm gonna go hike in there and check it out in August. But it's any elk. General license. Any elk, cow. Spike, big bull, little bull. So yeah. maybe maybe we'll come out with a cow elk or two. Yeah. Be able to say we do know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, I told you we figured it out. <laughs> well, I hope people keep sending comments. And if they have more comments about cow elk hunting that we didn't touch on, I or guess. Or questions. Yeah, questions, comments. Yeah, let us, yeah. Let us know. And again... We don't know everything. We've got a lot of years of experience between us, and I think that we're we're maybe on the threshold of going beyond novice at this point. Maybe, but you know, we're uh, there's a lot left to learn, and if there's if there are things that we don't know, we take that as a challenge to find yeah. out. Yeah, uh, for sure. I first of all, I say I don't know, but that doesn't mean I'm just going to say I don't know and move on. Yeah. And for me, it's like, you know, like you said, a challenge. All right, I, I got to figure this out. I, yep. uh, obviously, I'm not doing my homework. I'm sloughing <laughs> off here. So, well, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks to everybody for at least keeping the noise down to a tolerable yeah, level. Yeah, it's starting here. to pick up. I think the crowd out there is getting a little bigger. People are coming in off the courses. And yeah, I got 500 dilly bars over there there at the RMEF booth that I got to give away. So. If you don't give them away, you're going to be eating them between now and elk season, and that's, uh, that's not good. That's not going to bode well. No, it's not going to bode well, but I guess... You know, either you carry your your uh, calories in your pack or you carry them around your waist. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going back to the winter mentality. You're going to be starving yourself to death right up until the point that you actually need to eat something healthy. Yeah, probably. There you go. There yeah. You go. yeah. Uh, don't, don't do what I say. Do what Corey does. <laughs> don't overdo it on the dilly bar. All right. Thanks for listening, yeah, folks. We'll catch you on the next one.